What's it gonna take for you guys to be okay tonight and to stop this chaos? It ain't me, I, it's not me. I'm gonna let y'all know that now. It's not us guys neither. And I'm glad that y'all said that. It's not us, it's the police. This the madness that they spark up. This is what they encourage. This is what they provoke. This is what you get out of you taking some a loved one from someone. This is what you get. You get a lot of people that's hurt and they can't fit the right way. They can't no longer depend on the police to be here to protect us like they say they're going to do. So this is what you get. And no, it's not going to end today. I can't tell you it's going to end tomorrow. I don't know when it's going to end. But it's for y'all to start. We're not the ones that's killing us. Y'all killing us. We can't make a change if y'all don't change. Renegade coaches in the building. We wanted to start off with that young brother talking about the issue of police brutality because um, you know that's hitting us hard right now. Uh, all across the station, and folks are marching and demonstrating. So we're going to hit on some hard topics tonight. We're going to deal with, uh, like I said, like uh, Kamal was saying, the, uh, the deal with George Floyd, and not only just George Floyd over in Minneapolis, but police terrorism that's going on all around the country. Um, along with that, we have some situations going on with one of our uh, political prisoners who's been in been locked up for the last 49 years. So we're gonna talk about that. We have a few different guests on board tonight. And it's a very serious, potent, but uh, renegade culture style show tonight. So we want everybody to be on, on point. What's going on, Kamal? How you feeling tonight, man? Yo, so I'm doing good, I'm doing good. It's just, there's a lot of drama going on in the world. I feel like I spent most of my day today besides you know doing stuff with my family, coordinating, um, uh, you know, a demonstration, putting out information about the, the killing, um, trying to organize a, on a bigger platform. I, you know, I think this stuff is hitting everybody hard as it has before in the past. Um, and it's hitting everybody hard. So we got to see what we all can do about it. Um, and it's interesting, you brought up the, the political the political prisoner case where we talk about um, uh, Jaleel Montekin, uh and, you know, a, a former Black Panther Party member, BLA member, and, you know, a part of that real history that we're going to talk about is their fight around police brutality and police misconduct, which sparked their organization, uh, the Black Panther Party, to become probably the preeminent uh, revolutionary organization uh, over the last 60 or 70 years in terms of fighting for freedom. No doubt, no doubt. Who are some of the guests we got on tonight, Chief? Well, we got, we got Deruba Ben Wahai who former Black Panther Party member, BLA member, New York 21 defendant, um, great speaker, uh, someone who has laid it down, laid his life down, former political prisoner was locked down for 19 years. He's gonna not only talk with us about police brutality, he's gonna talk about the case of Jalil Montekin. We got uh, Bob Boyle, prominent New York attorney, who's done a lot of work on police misconduct, police brutality, and political prisoners. In fact, my running joke is that if you picked a white man in a room who's a lawyer, who knew all the uh, all about the Black Panther Party and the BLA, uh, Bob might be the last person based on physical appearance that you might pick. Um, he's the most trusted like lawyer um, in, in terms of this, the last 30 years, working with the Black Liberation cases of the Black Panther Party and BLA folks. And then lastly, um, 
uh, we have an attorney who did the appeal work for uh, Jaleel, and the actual uh, uh, appeal was heard today. Uh, and her name is Laura Carroll, and she's going to come on and talk about the actual appeal. And we're going to talk about what we can do to support Jaleel and what we can do around the issue of police brutality. Sound like we got a packed show. You know what I'm saying? What up, Ed Doctor? What's the deal, man? What's good? What's good? I was wondering if y'all remember I was here. Um, I'm ready to talk about a lot of the things going on in the world. We got to come up with some solutions here. And that's what Renegade Coach is all about. Well, we can't miss you. You over there looking like uh, Kwanzaa, Kwanzaa man or whatever. <laughs> looking like Karanga or somebody with that goddamn daishiki on. So hey, if we had the we miss you. If we had the picture up, we could definitely, uh, Kamal could help us out and letting everybody know what you look like right now. But uh, we don't, so it's all good. <laughs> Anyway, I knew anyway. my man was looking like Michonne from, from The Walking Dead. He was uh, <laughs> locked in bandana. <laughs> he was either that or he was saying like an African slave. We're not sure what he was looking like tonight. So y'all lucky not to get the, the visual. Don't need the audio. Yeah, exactly. And, and Kamal, anyway. Kamal's wife didn't dress him today, so he got a t-shirt on. So let's go. Yeah, you look like, look like. Hey, man, look who like was y'all talking about? <laughs> I think that means it's time for a break. Yeah, we're gonna be coming back with Jeruba Ben Wahai because he can't wait no longer. That's right. Man down the answers. Renegade coach is in the building. I'm a young black man doing all that I can to stay. Oh, but when I look around and I see what's being done in my kind. Every day, they just released some new film. In heart, it is pray. My people don't want no trouble. We've had enough, Sean. Go. I just want to live. God protect me. What's that? The Renegade Coach is in the building. Yeah, yeah. We live and direct. We got my man. One of y'all can talk. Yes, what? My bad, yo. That's that's my bad. I'm sorry. I think we stepping on each other. The audio might be a little bit um, slow on us right now. But the and my man Daruba keeps stepping in like he never been on a radio show before. Um, but I, we want to bring in Daruba. Hi, Daruba, you there? I'm here, brother. What's happening, man? How you feeling today? I'm all right. I'm cool. I think I think that what we first of all we get we we can't we can't get trapped off into um, leadership by victimization, and um, and that's very very important. And you have to balance that with with um, with sympathy and empathy and 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 feelings for the for the family and the loved ones of the brother that was that was murdered. But we still can um, succumb to. Um, spontaneous spontaneous uh, rebellion you know we need something much more concrete much more enduring much more um, um, established than that you know um, so Duba, that's, that um, so was... that's, i'm sorry Duba, that's, so let's get into that first i want to just remind folks that uh, brother floyd uh similar to you know a killing here in new york not too long ago um, Eric Garner, uh, basically a, a white cop, um, arrested him. Um, they claimed they were investigating, I think, either uh, a burglary or something uh, along those lines. Uh, they pulled him out of his car or he was standing next to a car. They put him on the ground. 
And I think the video shows that he wasn't resisting. They had his handcuffs on behind his, behind his back and a cop put his knee on his neck um, and held it there and kept the pressure on even though this brother wasn't resisting. And luckily there were bystanders around who videotaped the incident and people kept yelling for him to take his, his knee off of the, the guy's back, uh, off his neck, and he refused to do so. And the other cops just stood there and kept backing up the crowd, never turned around to tell this officer, this cop, to take his, his, his knee um, off of his brother's neck. And his brother started saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Um, and some say in the video, he actually started crying for his mom um, in, in the last seconds of his life. And he just basically asphyxiated him and choked the life out of him with his knee on his neck. And, and you're saying right now, you know, and, and some, you know, some of this stuff is, is, is kicking off in Minneapolis where folks in the street, um, uh, uh, different, different businesses have been targeted. Um, it's actually, you know, fires have been started. It's actually a feeling of some rebellion. But Drew, you're, you're getting to a, a, an important point that um, um, one, it, that, uh, you know, we have to be much more organized. And then you're saying that we can't um, um, a certain kind of leadership. So you can, can you dig in a little bit more about that when you're talking about this, this case and others around police brutality? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Kamal, what, what, I mean, this, this is just not, this is not a simple matter of either or, um, but to certain, this, this is a, this is a moment in history, it's a historical moment. And, um, and it's true that in historical moments, not everybody is fully aware of the ramifications of a lot of things that they're doing or, or a lot of things that's going on in, tan in tangent to what they're, what they're feeling and what they're going through. But we're in a uniquely existential moment in the crisis of this um, capitalism and finance capital. And you have, what, you have over 40 million people that's unemployed now. So you add on top of that the, the historically um, marginalized uh, labor force uh, descended from uh, former chattel slaves and uh, who mostly are in prison or in some form of institutional uh, control or confinement. We're talking about almost 50 million people. That's, that's one quarter of, of, of the United States population. And, and uh, so we need to really understand that this is a unique opportunity for all of us who claim to be community organizers, who are revolutionaries, who are abolitionists, even for progressives and reformers. This is a historical moment. Um, and, um, and, 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 and Kisas or, or retribution has its place. In all historical moments, retribution has its place. And so we can't discount that. So, but we can understand that that retribution should not take the form of, of, of spontaneous um, uh, uh, rebellions. Uh, um, we know what the pitfalls of spontaneous um, uh, violence is from Ferenc Fanon's um, a psychoanalysis of the Algerian Revolution. And, and why that's important is because, first of all, we're suffering in many ways from a residual absentee slave mentality. Because the mere fact that other black people stood around filming, filming his brother's death, and nobody did nothing but film, and urged the police to get off. And even while the brother was choking, I believe in one sentence, he used the word, sir. The man that was murdering him and killing him, he still called him sir. You see, nobody threw a brick, nobody threw a rock, nobody pulled out a gat, shot nobody. The popo was standing there looking, looking stupid. 
And, um, and so my point is that we have been conditioned to state violence, that the police are not killing. They didn't kill uh, Floyd um, as an aberration. They were doing their job. They didn't kill Eric Gardner as an aberration. They were doing their job. They didn't kill um, um, young people in our communities um, by accident at a, at a car stop, driving while black, dry, uh, um, you know, black while mowing your front lawn. No, this was the, this is designed into the system. We're living in a in a system of uh, that that is a. Uh, uh, a white supremacist social construct in which the law, um, the state violence and illegal violence and even extra legal violence, as the old lynchings used to be, that they used to call picnics. These are all institutional formats of controlling um, uh, a labor force that, that um, has never been um, part of the capitalist um, uh, uh, labor structure. And, and, <clears throat> and now that this um, this coronavirus has um, has revealed the, um, the 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 lack of healthcare for working people, the people that weren't on the payrolls of of weren't be, their pay weren't being considered. Uh, just a few months ago, they were talking about uh, fading out their jobs, and, and now they're they're calling them heroes. You see, the, the garbage man is a hero. The person that delivers your food in the Uber now is a hero. But before you didn't even want to give him a, a, a the system didn't even want to give him or her um, a, a livable wage. Right. So we need to run to understand where we're at right now, and we need to understand what we need to be encouraging in our people. We need to be encouraging retribution. We need to be encouraging abstinence, a, 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 a refusal to participate in the system as it was. That we have, we need a new, we need a a, a, a new uh, paradigm here. And as the brother was pointing to, there are certain there are certain programs, there are certain there are certain approaches, there are certain survival uh, mechanisms that we need to put in place in order to make that possible. And for and for activists not to put those things in place, for activists not to deal with those things, but instead um, talking that yik yak stuff about Black Lives Matter or hands up, don't shoot, and all of that stuff. That's all sloganeering. That's cool, and I understand the energy that's going on. But we need to understand how we got to this moment. If we got to. So, 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 so what, I, what, what I'm trying to say is, 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 is that, um, yeah, people supposed to tear, supposed to tear shit up. Yeah, they supposed to do that. That, that, that comes with the. I mean, yeah, they have to vent that. But we have to redefine that. We have to create the type of abolitionist movement that harnesses that, that, ch that transforms that from spontaneous rebellions to a protracted resistance. And, what do you and think? That's what I'm saying. What, what, D, what do, you, what do you think gave you guys, and I'm talking about the Panthers back in the day, uh, it felt like the ability to do that along with other organizations, but like you had an ability to at least start to push back and harness um, some of the power of folks um, and the anger of folks to harness it towards um, something far more militant. And, and you're right. It seems like these days we are in a position to uh, people do this work, but uh, it, it always, it, it slips back into strictly policy work as opposed to organizing the larger community. Well, we have to look at the historical moment that the Black, the Black Panther Party came along in. I mean, and that's very important because 
that particular historical moment uh, doesn't exist right now. Again, um, history doesn't repeat itself, Kamal. Really, it 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 uh, it rhymes. It may not repeat itself um, uh, note for note, but it rhymes. So back then, in '66, in the mid '60s, um, you had you had rebellions um, from from the Watts Rebellion going on um, almost every summer, in almost every urban uh, uh, situation, and um, it was it was almost always I would say even 80% uh, of the time, uh, and the records will reflect this. The Kerner Commission report: the the cause of these spontaneous rebellions was police murder rumor of murder or killing of an innocent black man or woman. Now check that out, it's the same thing. But this is like 1966. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, 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 um, now we need to understand that in 1966, the, uh, the national security state was at a completely different place than it is now. It hadn't consolidated itself in, the, in, in many ways in terms of the white male population. There was the Vietnam War. That there was still the, um, the, 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 the dying embers of the Cold War, you see? Um, it, 66 was just what, five years after the Bay of Pigs or something? You know, so, so, so we need to understand what that period was, okay? And, um, so the Black Panther Party, when it, the Black Panther Party started over a traffic light uh, in the black community where, 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 where a number of children were killed in the intersection, they refused to put in the traffic light and the Black Panther Party started regulating traffic and then that led that escalated to the party patrolling the police with a, a Huey patrolling the police, Huey and Bob with a law book. And uh, so, so what happened was you had a confluence of, 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 of street wise uh, uh, young men and women who, were, who, who defined themselves uh, in the Marxian terms as a lump and proletariat. But these were the brothers and sisters on the block, you know, who run after our spots, who shoot craps, who hang out on the streets, who do all of those things. The so-called marginal uh, economy and the marginal, marginalized gangster so-called criminal class. I suggest everybody go back and look at the Battle of Algiers and the protagonist, Ali. He was a criminal. He started out as a criminal, but he became the most wanted anti, he became the most wanted rebel against um, French colonialism in Algiers. And so the consciousness of police, of police terror in our communities in the urban areas bred a certain resistance only from a certain class. All the other classes sought to ameliorate or to, or to um, somehow exceptionalize these particular actions. And then you got to understand, too, you asked one of the things that made Panther Party able to do what it did was the fact that we didn't have, we didn't have cell phones. Right. We didn't have the Internet. And, and that's very important. And we, that's very important for us to understand now, because one of the things that the enemy did and one of the things that they always do in, counter, in, in, in trying to stop uh, people's uprisings is that they have to make sure that any type of revolutionary leadership does not pass on its experiences to the next generation mm. or to younger people. This is why you had that brother um, that you just had the little uh, rap on uh, that, that you played. That he, the things that he was saying, some of those things were, 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 were patently incorrect. You know, but he, he's functioning in the existential moment of emotions and he didn't have the advantage of having experienced combat leadership. 
We need combat leaders. And by combat leaders, I mean we need brothers and sisters who are who are toughened um, in both the um, the boardrooms and and the pool room and the strip club. We're talking to the wrong people. And 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 the people that do have um, they do have a relative degree of of, of 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 wealth and who have a stage, you know, they they have a class interest to ameliorate any type of serious abolitionist movement. We need an anti, we need an abolitionist movement. We need a movement that's about abolishing the social construct of white supremacy in America. We don't need to reform it. We don't need to make it better. We don't need to tweak it. We need to tear it up. Okay, and this coronavirus has offered us the unique opportunity to lay bare to everybody, black and white, poor and rich, the inequities of capitalism and why, it, why people of color suffer disproportionately as a result of, 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 a, of a pandemic. Why, why people don't have homes, why, um, why they were paying exorbitant rents and now they find out that they can get their rent forgiven for three months and it's no thing. You know, the, the government can, pit, can print $3 trillion, it's no biggie. But they were beefing mm -hmm. before about how difficult it was for, for universal health care or free education. They said, yeah, oh, how are we yeah. going to pay for it? But these crackers printed money and they managed to bail out these, these businesses and banks that can't fail. We need to understand where we at. Right now. <clears throat> right now, Daruba, we, um, you know, one of the things that you've been talking about for years is a decentralization program. Um, where does that stand right now? And can you break down what decentralization of the police would mean in 2020? Well, decentralization of the police would mean in 2020 would mean black community survival. It, 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 it's, it's a survival mechanism because, you know, the zombie apocalypse is approaching if, I'm use, if, I, if I have to use the Xbox uh, analysis. <laughs> it is approaching, you know, and we need, we need, to, we need to hunker down in, into our communities. We need to make our communities safe. We need to make our communities safe for our children and for, and for the elderly. And the only way we could do that is to take control of all of those institutions and, and infrastructures that our, that our community need. Um, we realize now that the green energy is possible. We realize that we could, we could actually, if they turned off the lights in, in Harlem tomorrow, Harlem could turn on its own lights by itself, independent of the grid. But we haven't built that infrastructure. Activists haven't done that. So, so we are not taking advantage of the technology that we have right now, but community control of the police means decentralization of a command and control structure. It means decentralizing the police. No more political appointments for the chief of police. The chief of police has to be a democratically um, a, a, a chosen position because it's a political position. And that doesn't mean it shouldn't be professional. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be trained, but we have to train those forces in the community that we have, whether they're gangbangers, uh, set trippers, or whatever, so that they perform the type of role they're supposed to perform in the community. And that's to regulate. And that's to regulate criminal activity. That's to protect the weak. 
That's to, uh, to ensure that there's enough tranquility uh, in the community for, uh, for us to be able to go about our business and function. There's, there's programs like the Community Builders Program, movement uh, uh, program with urban, with urban farming. We need to claim urban space. We need to stop paying rent. We need to stop paying electric bills. We need to stop doing all of that because capitalism's on its knees. If everybody stopped paying rent, what they gonna do? Put you in the street? What's gonna happen to the property? And especially if you throw if you torch it on the way out. So what they're gonna do? <laughs> yeah, gee, huh? on that so on that note, we're going we're about to head to our first break. And when yeah. we come back, we're gonna get into the case of Jaleel Montekin, a fellow Panther, um uh who's been incarcerated, like um uh Brother Kalanji said, for uh, forty years now. Uh, who comes out of that time period in history of directly confronting police brutality and being a victim of COINTELPRO and police violence and state violence against uh, the very people <coughs> who are trying to defend our community. And so we want to talk, because he is he's actually one of the, probably one of the last remaining political prisoners um, of that generation left who either hasn't been released or has, has died uh, at the hands of the state. So we want to talk about his case um, where, is he, where he's at, uh, the appeal that he just had uh, earlier today on Thursday. Uh, we're going to bring on a couple of attorneys who have represented him throughout the years and currently, and we're going to come right back on Renegade Culture. Raise some tension, running high. Under 21, and it's far too young to die. My salvation can defy. This must be rising. Renegade coaches in the building. Yeah, yeah. Back again. Back again. Got a lot going on tonight. Like I said, um, you know, talking to the Ruba Ben Mahad in regards to this whole police terrorism thing, we're gonna get into uh a number of things that connect to it, including uh counterinsurgency in the case of Jaleel Munta King. So um so a number of different folks uh coming on to join us. We have uh attorney Bob Boyle will be on deck in a few seconds. Um we also have uh, another attorney, which will be joining us a little bit later on. Uh, Your name is Nora Carroll. Yeah. Nora Carroll. Okay. I knew her name was Nora. I was off on the last name. I didn't just want to, you know what I mean? <laughs> do like you, change people's names and shit. You know I, I do mean? it all the time, bro. I do what works. I do what works. We, we, we know. We know. You do it, but we don't know if it works or not. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? But um, yes, yeah, so we're going we to get started. Is Bob in the building or what? Bob is there. I think Bob might want you to text him real quick to tell him to come back to the to the computer. But okay. as you do that, Duba, can you um, uh, are you in a position to lay out a little bit of Jaleel's history um, in terms of like uh, how much time he's been back? You know, his history with the Panthers and so forth, and the time he's been locked down um, in New York State and the case itself. Yeah. Well, the uh, case goes, his case goes back to 71. Um, and and um, 
right after the split in the, um, in the Black Panther Party and um, and the uh, and the act and 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 the rise in activism of the Black Underground and and the Latino Underground, the FALN, F and uh, um, the Weather Underground and the Black Panther Party. Um, so there was a vibrant underground <clears throat> that attended the uh, the whole decade of the '60s. And we need to understand that at that time, the decade of the 60s, when the Vietnam War occurred, transition from Korean War to, to, uh, to the Korean War, the advent of, of, of the, the, the cultural development of certain types of music genres that we take for granted today that we call old school, um, R&B and blues. And at this particular period of time, the state hadn't really consolidated it's the, the type of power that it has today. Um, the conservative right, the, the radical right that we see today that's in power um, um, got, their, um, got their spurs in the 60s, in the late 60s. Um, mm -hmm. um, uh, McCarthy, McCarthyism was dead long ago in the 50s. And um, so we need to understand that when the Black Panther Party came along and these movements came along, the U.S. was involved in, in, in Vietnam, a very divisive war that threatened the lives of a whole different class of young people. You know, the, the, um, the, uh, the draft affected young white college students and young white kids uh, from, from well-to-do families, and they weren't about to go off to Vietnam to die in no paddy fields in Southeast Asia. So many of them fled to Canada and they protested the war, and there was a vibrant international outcry against the U.S. involvement in the war. And the state came down on this. So this was these three things that were happening back then. It was a cultural revolution. It was a cultural transition where young white people, young white youth in colleges were beginning to question the status quo, was beginning to question the privileges of their parents. And they were turning on to weed and LSD and tuning out to uh, to alcohol and, and 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 all of that stuff. And then there was the political upheaval of the anti-war movement with the rebellions in the black communities every summer. And uh, and then there was the political divisions in ruling class between the Democratic and Republican parties on which way to take the national security state, how to develop it. And Nixon came along with a plan to, uh, to, to, to initiate a war on drugs, which would, which would have handled uh, the, the hippies and the yippies, and, and, and uh, an omnibus crime control act. Or, or an approach of law and order that would handle the, uh, the, the, the black folks burning down cities every summer. And, uh, and also the move of the Democratic Party uh, to the center, the, the, the abolition of uh, the destruction of unions and labor movements. All of these things occurred in the period of the late 60s through the mid 70s. And we all know about the, the drug war that they, that they unleashed on the black community of crack, PCP, heroin, from one phase to the other. Each drug was more destructive than the previous one. Each, each, um, each set on the street became more ruthless in administering their turf in terms of um, uh, slinging that yayo. And it was out of this milieu in, 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 the, in the early 70s that, that even your current generation of hip hop emerged. So, so I, I just, I know I glossed over a lot of things. But I wanted people to understand that the government hadn't yet perfected the national security state that it has now.
it hadn't it, it hadn't consolidated the power of the police like it did now mm-hmm. and and um and it was the um the historical credit to the historical credit of the radical left then and especially in the black community the black panther party it was the black panther party's greatest contribution to um to the survival of black peoples is that they delayed the consolidation of the national security state by at least 10 or 12 years so Duke, if we want to we want to we want to move 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 the history forward i think you set the context because we want to talk about jaleel um himself um and and the role he played and the time he spent in prison so I, and i also want to give uh we've been joined now by bob boyle um again uh, an attorney who's represented panthers um and other political folks throughout the last uh decades and at times is uh, if i'm not mistaken has also represented uh jaleel on various appeal cases and what's been termed as the new york three jaleel's co-defendants are herman bell and albert noah washington and I was, uh, uh, Bob, I want to give you an opportunity to, to speak up and jump in a little bit. Could, can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, Jaleel, particularly his, you know, a little bit about the case, but also his time spent? Because um, the, the, the main, one of the main reasons about this program is that, which we haven't mentioned yet, is that uh, uh, Jaleel has um, been um, uh, diagnosed with having COVID-19. Uh, his health is ill. As we said, he's been locked down for over 40 years and is an appeal to try to get him out as fast as possible, um, I think, related to his health issues. So you could talk a little bit about Jaleel and his time spent in prison uh, and lead us up. And then we're going to have Nora come on in a few and talk about the actual appeal. Sure. Uh, good evening, everyone. Right. Uh, yeah. Hello, Bob. Uh, Jaleel Montekim, who was formerly known as Anthony Bottom, has been in prison since uh, 1971. He's now 68 years old. He was a member of the Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Army. Um, And he is serving a sentence of 25 years to life um, for the um, homicide of two New York City police officers, which occurred in May of 1971. Um, Jaleel, uh, you know, like I said, it has been in prison. I guess it's going on 50 years. Uh, and um, he has appeared before the parole board, gee, it must be nine or 10 times. And each time he's been denied, um, not uh, because of any problems that he's caused while he's been in prison, but because of quote unquote, the nature of the offense. The offense being, of course, involving the death of two cops. Each time he comes up for the parole board, there is an organized campaign by the New York City Patrolman's Benevolent Association to keep him in prison. Uh, Their position, of course, being that anyone who um, is convicted of killing a police officer should serve the rest of their lives in jail. But it goes deeper than that in Jaleel and others' cases is that the the PBA's attack on him and others um, is a political one. They, you know, Jaleel comes out of the historical period that Daruba was just discussing. Um, He embraced revolutionary politics. 
He embraced the politics of the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army. And he, um, you know, as the other political prisoners, is a symbol of that resistance. So the, um, the efforts to keep him in jail and to keep all like him in jail is politically motivated. Uh, and uh, when each time he comes up for parole, like I said, there's a campaign, his articles in the New York Post, the widow of one of the police officers gives a press conference um, calling you know, for him uh, not to be released. Um, in similar to the case of Herman Bell, um, his co-defendant who I represented, um, both New York City Mayor de Blasio and uh, Governor Cuomo um, denounced Herman Bell getting parole. And after Herman got parole and got out, Julio went to the parole board and was denied. So um, the situation now, of course, he's 68 years old. He has serious health issues that Nora will um, discuss in much further detail. But you know, the fact remains, he should be out already and shouldn't have to be going through all of this. Uh, so, which is really, you know, um, uh, putting his life in danger. Um, and, um, you know, we hope, you know, he gets not right now, the, the primary thing is, of course, we want him to recover from, from this horrible disease. And, um, but we want also want him to be able to go home. Now, Bob, um, for the listeners who are just hearing about Jalil Musa King, I think that um, one of the things, I, I don't know if I missed it, but um, now he was scheduled to be released and that was blocked by the New York Attorney General. Is that correct? Well, what happened was, uh, um, and uh, Nora discussed this further, there was a writ brought because of the COVID-19 situation that the uh, the judge granted and the state uh, immediately went to the appellate court and got a stay of his release pending the appeal that was argued today up in Albany. But yes, the New York State Attorney General, um, Letitia James, happens to be a African-American woman. Yes. Went to court and got a stay of his release. Yes, she's, she's a real piece of shit. Um, yeah, so Jalil's been locked up since he's 18 years old. Is that correct? 18 or 19. That's right. 18, 19 years old. So uh, we, we're being joined right now by Nora Carroll, one of Jalil's uh, attorneys. Uh, welcome to Renegade Culture, Nora. Nora. Thank you so much for having me. Can, can you kind of, uh, we, we was listening, uh, the Rubles kind of gave us a history of the Black Panther Party and a little on who Jalil is and uh, Bob was just breaking down uh, Jalil's history. Can you bring us up to speed as to where uh, this situation is? We know there was a, a hearing here today. Um, kind of give us a, give the listeners an idea of what's going on right now. Sure, I'll try just from the legal point of view. He, like Bob said, we filed a writ of habeas corpus in the Supreme Court in New York in Sullivan County which the Supreme Court is the lowest court in New York State. And it, it was granted because 
not only is Jaleel of a certain age, he's 68 now, and he's also black and has other risk factors like related to his underlying medical conditions that put him in several of the categories that you know would put him at highest risk of complications or death were he to contract COVID-19. And so based on that, the judge agreed with us. He said, yes, this person is at very high risk. I think the judge said, I can't imagine someone at higher risk and ordered him released. And then it was infuriating and awful when it was immediately appealed and they were able to get that stay to keep him locked up. And then while the stay was, was in effect, but before the appeal was heard, he got sick. And it was really one of the worst experiences I've ever had with being right, because we were like, we told you so. This is what we told you was gonna happen. Hmm. And, and, now, and now here we are. So legally, his case is on appeal, and the appellate court heard the case today, heard the arguments, and has not ruled yet. Um, so obviously, we're hoping that things go our way. They could, they could affirm the lower court's decision, which would result in his release, although he's hospitalized right now. And that's what we're hoping for. Um, Joel also is still eligible for parole and is scheduled to have another parole interview in September of this year. So that's also on the horizon. Now he's been denied parole 11 times, is that correct? I think it's, I was asked this in an interview earlier today and I should know the number off the top of my head, but I think it's 12 or wow. 13. Wow. It's, it's an extraordinary number. And I, I mean, I think it speaks to a lot of things but I mean, at the, at the heart of it, it's just egregiously unfair and shows that the parole board is not following the law because the law says that essentially what they determine is, can I let this person out? Are they going to be a, a problem in the community, commit further crimes? Um, and it, it's been so obvious for so many decades that that's not the reason why they're keeping him in. And it's not because they think he's going to commit additional crimes. It's purely punitive. It's related to his um, political activity in the past and in the present, frankly. And it's also related to the opposition of the PBA. So it's, it's always been a very political case. Then um, what we've tried to do is to get the board just to focus on the law and follow the law. Um, and to leave that aside somewhat. Yeah, we should note that uh, I, I think you mentioned uh, that Jalil has remained uh, sort of steadfastly committed to his politics of self-determination for the black community. Um, you know, he wrote a book a few years ago now, I believe, but we are our own liberators. Um, and Jalil was, uh, as you know, I, I think many of us who've worked in the area of, 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 of trying to free or support political prisoners in the past and the present know that Jalil has been steadfast and that the state um, in various ways uh, at the court system, uh, guards, um, the PBA has done what, it's, what it can to use him as an example uh, continuously 
uh, to stop uh, sort of uh, his views um, from spreading to, to sort of masses of people. So, uh, you know, we, we agree that we don't think that this is strictly, a, obviously this is not about uh, a, a legal proceeding for uh, most of the mechanisms of the state. Uh, this is about stopping somebody's politics. Yeah, Bob, um, you know, and, and you're absolutely right, Kamal. Um, question for Bob, you know, there, there's a lot of different, you know, a lot of our listeners, you know, uh, they, they, they range. It's a, it's a, we have a variety of listeners. We have the, the hardcore nationalists. We have Pan-Africanists. We have uh, communists. We have all types of folks listening. We have apolitical folks. Can you break down what a political prisoner is and how does the term political prisoner apply to Jalil Muta King? Well, a political prisoner um, is a person who is in jail because of their politics, either because they engaged in um, revolutionary or political activities on the street and were captured and sent to prison, because, or because they were framed and sent to prison, or who became political in jail and who were then denied release because they became political in jail. Um, uh, Jaleel Muntakim, of course, you know, at a very young age was um, drawn to the politics of the Black Panther Party. And um, uh, he is a political prisoner because of what he did out on the street. Uh, and uh, after he was after he was captured, so you know you have many facets to this, and you know I'm not being um, in the time you have. There's it's a it's a very broad discussion about who is, and um, and further and further definitions. But uh, I wanted to follow up on something you know that that Nora was talking about in terms of the PBA. You know, Jaleel is a symbol. And the political prisoners are a symbol. The, in keeping someone like Jaleel in prison, the state wants to send a message to those who would embrace radical or revolutionary politics on the street by saying, if you embrace these politics, you're going to end up in prison for the rest of your life. There's an FBI document that Deruber is well aware of. Um, which we got in his lawsuit of the 300,000 pages that we were able to, to obtain, which says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, and these are the FBI words, not mine, the Negro youth and moderate must be made to understand that if they succumb to revolutionary teaching, they will be dead revolutionaries or spend the rest of their lives in prison. So that's the message also that they want to send by keeping the political prisoners and Jaleel in prison. If you embrace these politics, you're going to either be dead or spend the rest of your life in jail. And it is for those reasons, of course, that we need to support freedom for Jaleel and freedom for political prisoners. I think, I think um, I, I, to add to that, you know, um, you know, because Jaleel came out of the movements of the 60s, and in 1971, basically the movement of the 60s was on the on the on the way out. Um, and and but there was a there was a robust black underground, um, and 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 that was something that 
that that that really that the government has always feared. They have always feared um, black um, armed resistance, black militant resistance, um, and uh, and the use of revolutionary violence. So so um, they feared it during the slave the days of slavery. But there was a there was an underground railroad. I mean, there's books out on the underground railroad. I think one just came out. It's very moving. Um, I forgot the name of it, but um, there, there is no such mechanisms now. You see, there are no such mechanisms now. And that's why you see the aggressiveness of the national security state, the way the police have developed the police state, the militarized police. They became militarized because of the Black Panther Party. Right. With that, with that in mind, we have to go to a quick break. We want to come back. We're going to hear more from the Ruben Ben Wahad, uh, attorney Bob Boyle, uh, attorney Nora Carroll. We're going to uh, get some uh, uh, some marching orders from Nora Carroll from a legal perspective, what the listeners can do. Um, we're going to talk about what counterinsurgency is, what counter, what COINTELPRO is, because of the fact that a lot of times folks throw the, uh, the word COINTELPRO around as if it's just, you know, uh, everyday terms and lingo. And we also want to jump into what's going on today in regards to uh, the People's Liberation Movement, how, um, you know, there are certain agent provocateurs who are dropped off in these particular, uh, in these times and pretty much leading folks to the slaughter. You listen to Renegade Culture, we'll be back at you. We in America, but I call it American. Can't party on New Year's Eve. Oscar Grant getting held to a Sean Bell killer. Emmett Till Carolyn Bryant is a liar. Hoping she fry in hell. Can't play outside. Tim and Rice, they murder teams. Like the KKK, we playing the murder team. Can't breathe, Eric Garner. Coroner's on the corner. Mike Brown got gunned down. Family still mourning. Can't have no car problems like Corby Jones. Trayvon Martin can't count no skittles. What's going on? Can't have legal steel like Palermo Castillo. Can't read a book like he's got. You'll get killed. Dylan Roof. Found a church, made it a murder scene. Cops didn't clap when they took him to break. You can't, can't run from no one. Ask Walter the stop. I'll probably make it to the end of this verse and get. Renee coaches in the building. Yeah, we back on. What's up, Kamal? You kind of quiet over there. You all right, man? What you doing, man? No, no, I was doing, you know, I was listening to our, our guests, you know, and, and all the information they were dropping. So uh, I was I was basically coming to listen and enjoying the show because I think there's a lot of great information being dropped, not only about obviously what's going on with Jaleel, but what we're getting into, I think with Ruba and Bob, um, we're talking about at that very end about counterinsurgency and COINTELPRO. And I think you were going to ask Daruba to follow up about, can, can you explain, to, uh, and then uh, Bob can probably join in, and if Nora has information on it, she can too, um, for our listeners who think they know what COINTELPRO is, sort of the, the depravity of how COINTELPRO operated to stop black movements. And again, not just militant black movements, but any black movement until they thought that movement was safe enough to replace something more militant. And how Bob got involved in the fight against COINTELPRO, because I think that's an <laughs> interesting joint too. Yeah. So Bob, won't you start us off? Uh, okay. Um, yeah, well, uh, you know, COINTELPRO is, a, um, you know, it's an acronym for the, what's called the Counterintelligence Program. And it has a long, long history. It goes back to the 19-teens when the FBI first formed. And um, it was used 
um, its tactics of disruption, um, false prosecutions and so forth was used to disrupt, disrupt the um, union movements of the earlier 20th century. Um, and actually it even goes <laughs> further than that. It goes back to um, the use of the, of the uh, legal system um, to enforce the fugitive slave laws in the 19th century. So it, it has a long history. What I was going to also add, Bob, that you, it, it, you know, uh, many people say Marcus Garvey was the first victim of a COINTELPRO uh, type uh, activity. Oh, sure. I don't know about the first, but certainly you know, he was a victim um, er, very early on after the FBI was, was formed. Um, they, you know, they couldn't get him in a lot of different ways, so they used the tax code. Um, to uh, disrupt what he was doing and um, uh, and and try to break up, you know, the movement that that he was he was ahead of. But what's commonly referred to in uh, as COINTELPRO is really the COINTELPRO that became active in the in the 1960s, and it targeted uh, a wide variety of progressive political activity from the anti-war movement anti-Vietnam War movement, the um, economic uh, equity movement, but essentially, and I think this is, you know, agreed by most, its chief target was the Black Liberation Struggle, and within that, the chief target was the Black Panther Party. Um, and uh, I think a congressional investigation in the 70s revealed that over 90% of the COINTELPRO actions which targeted the Black Liberation Struggle targeted the Black Panther Party. Um, that was called the Church Committee. And what were some of the, of the actions? Well, you know, using informants and provocateurs, as Kalanji was saying, to build mistrust within organizations, um, uh, rumor mongering, sending false um, uh, you know, letters uh, to various people to create distrust in organizations. Um, you know, base, basic stuff like the use of police brutality and criminal prosecutions to disrupt um, the or organizations. You know, Deruba himself was one of 21 uh, leaders of the Black Panther Party in New York in 1969, arrested and charged with a, in a bogus conspiracy case. And in part, as a result of that case, a lot of the community work that the Black Panther Party was doing, the breakfast programs, the clothing programs, the anti-police brutality campaigns, suffered because the leadership was put in jail. Um, and uh, COINTELPRO was discovered and I'm skipping a lot here, in about 1971, when some anti-war activists burglarized the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania. Could you imagine that? And they went in, and th their goal was to burn draft cards. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they opened some file cabinets, and they found these documents, counterintelligence program, black nationalist hate groups, and they stole them and they leaked them to the media. And that was the first 
disclosure of what was the COINTELPRO many of us are familiar with from the 60s and, and 70s. Many people went to jail as a result of the counterintelligence program, Daruba being one of them. Mm -hmm. um, and it was through, you know, many years of litigation that we were able to show, you know, his frame up. Uh, and um, there was other cases, such as the case of Geronimo Pratt, who was also framed in the counterintelligence program. Uh, so it, it worked on many different levels. It's a... Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a it's a it's a college or postgraduate level course, in and of itself, to learn the intricacies about how it works. Peace. Um, that's definitely a good answer, uh, Daruba. I I think you're muted. I don't know if you have to unmute yourself. Can you hear us, Daruba? Okay, I don't know if he hears us or not. Um, <laughs> Zoom has done what okay, many people okay. did. They muted the room. <laughs> <laughs> can, you hear, can you hear me now? Yeah, we, we hear you. We, we hear you now. Bob, Bob oh, said. <laughs> I heard what Bob said now. <laughs> I heard what Bob said. Listen, one of the things I think we need to point out, and it's very important. Hold on, Daruba. That, that chicken sandwich you're chewing, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's chicken. That's not chicken, brother. That's 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 a that's a that's a New York cheese sandwich. I mean, New York cheese uh, cake. Okay, well, we we hear it on the air, so please. I'm sorry, my bad. Um, <laughs> but listen, man, uh, the uh, the 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 reasons why the Black Panther Party was targeted, um, the, one of the utmost targets, of the counterintelligence program, and. Um, and other programs that evolved from it, Bob didn't touch on it, but I'm quite sure he would, like Prysac and Chesarab and these other programs that evolved as the Black Underground became more, more active. Um, and, and prisoners and, and, and cadre and soldiers began to go to prison. Um, is, is the politics of the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party um, had the position that the BDS movement has today back there in, 19, in, in the 1960s. The Black Panther Party had had um, had a had a gay rights um, uh, a manifesto out in 1968, 60. I mean, excuse me, 1969. So, so we need to understand it was the politics of the Black Panther Party that made them the, uh, the target. It wasn't the, it wasn't so much our willingness to defend ourselves and shoot back. Black folks have always defended themselves and shot back. You know, of course, it never got the type of uh, ink or the type of, of, of Hollywood um, uh, reenactment that, 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 that the pacifist Negro got, that the, you know, that the praying Negro got, but it, it, it was always there. There was always resistance in the black community. It was the politics of the Black Panther Party, solidarity with revolutionary movements overseas, following in Malcolm X's footsteps in terms of his pan-Africanism, um, in terms of its support for the Palestinian people's right to self-determination, in terms of its anti-imperialist policies. Um, the, the, um, uh, the Black Panther Party was an ally and invited to, um, to North Vietnam and, um, and to North Korea. So, so we need to understand, and young people need to understand, that, that although all politics is local, all local politics influence and determine the, the, the parameters of international diplomacy and international politics. So we have a unity of purpose with poor people 
um, in 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 Africa and in and 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 the people in the imprisoned um, occupied territories of Palestine. So so if unless we begin to express that in our community politics, I mean, while they were throwing tear gas uh, canisters at, at 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 demonstrators in in Ferguson, it was. It was the Palestinians who who provided online uh, uh, information to the to to the demonstrators and the activists on how to protect themselves from tear gas in a in a street confrontation. So right. we need to understand that this is our struggle is global. We are not a minority. We are a majority. People of color are a majority. And so the whole issue of immigrations, the the, the rise of fascism, and the police state anti-immigrant policies are all reflections of what the Black Panther Party stood against and, um, and, and were unable to pass on to a, uh, to a subsequent generation. Speak, speaking of rebellion, um, rebellions, uh, right now we know that uh, things are hot in Minnesota and the number of folks who are, the number of uprisings around the country right now. But one of the things we're noticing as well is activists were noticing that uh, there are a lot of uh, new faces popping up. There are a lot of folks who are talking about they've been involved in struggles, so on and so forth, that no one seems to know. During uh, the 60s and 70s, we know that there were folks like Gene Roberts who infiltrated uh, Malcolm's organization uh, and also the Black Panther Party. You know, I think that uh, you were familiar with Gene Ro Roberts. Um, how, when we talk about today's struggle. Can you give us an idea of who Gene Roberts was and how Gene Roberts can be reborn in these days and times? Well, we need to understand, as Bob pointed out, one of the ways they went after the um, uh, Marcus Garvey was they used the income tax laws. And they used Negroes that were in his financial aspects of the of 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 his movement to help uh, frame them, and they also use uh, they also use tax evasion and income tax laws against Al Capone, against a uh, apolitical gangster. So the technique of the state using informers and police agents to uh, entrap, to murder, to imprison those that they that they uh, criminalize or or feel that are political enemies of the state is almost always the same. And, uh, and Gene Roberts is a classic example. Gene Roberts was, uh, was an undercover police officer. He was actually a police officer. Um, and um, and uh, he, worked, he, he was a bossy agent, the Bureau of Special Services he was a bossy agent. And he had infiltrated um, uh, Malcolm's organization, the Organization of African-American Unity, infiltrated them. And in fact, he was on the stage when Malcolm was murdered and, and administered mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Some people say he was like a vampire sucking the life out of Malcolm. But, um, but having known him personally and knowing that, um, I mean, subsequently finding out after the 21 indictment that he was the police, that he was a pig, um, having known him personally before then, um, he, he, he had a great deal of genuine um, uh, I'm not going to say re regret, but he was being eaten alive by what he did by, by his failures with Malcolm and and the role that he um, that he played. And you know, and if you see him now, you can see that these people, people like that, you can see them look like they're they're being eaten alive, and they you know they they they're withering, their 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 teeth are falling out, you know, their their back is broke, you know, they're going out real chump style. So, but. 
Uh, Gene Roberts was a police detective. Now, there were other agents that Bob remembers their names, I really keep forgetting, that weren't actually um, allowed to graduate from police academy. They were taken aside, they were given, uh, they were sworn in in secret, they were, their badge was held by the, uh, by the bureau chief of the uh, Bureau of Special Services, and they went directly undercover into the black community. And um, if we know, we know about Fred Hampton, for instance, the individual that provided the, um, the floor plan. Is that Melvin Cotton Smith? Yeah. That provided the, um, the floor plan for uh, for the assassination of Fred Hampton was a COINTELPRO agent who worked with the um, with the Chicago Police Department. You know, was, I mean, that was William O'Neill. Yeah, yeah, William O'Neill. Okay, yeah. and, right and there you go, Bob. And 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 I mean, we need to understand that um, even even in in New York, there were so many informants and infiltrators from different agencies in the Black Panther Party that they were snitching on each other. You know, um, and, and, and this, this became, we saw this when we got the files, uh, in my case, that um, you had NYPD undercover agents um, um, who targeted or believed that FBI uh, or COINTELPRO agents were really, were really genuine um, um, crazies and, and, and that they should be watched and only to find out that they was watching each other. So, so we need to understand that... Um, an organization that doesn't have a security apparatus, that doesn't um, have a social network that could vet people. One of the ways that we were able to survive and, and mainly the BLA was never overtly infiltrated by the police. Um, and, and I mean, there were informers that came out and, you know, they couldn't take the pressure and they snitched or whatever the case may be. But they, but, but they were never allowed to establish a, a, um, a, what, what, what you would call an encapsulated organization, mm -hmm. like the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan has always been an encapsulated um, 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 extremist organization. In other words, the government knew exactly what it was doing when it did it. And in fact, it was often government agents who were doing the uh, lynching and who were doing the, uh, uh, the murders, like in the Vi uh, Viola Liuzzo case. You know, um, the, the, the people that perpetrated her massacre and the massacre of, of, of Cheney um, were, were actual undercover FBI informants. So there was a difference between informants and actual police agents, but the police technique was to make sure that nobody would recognize an undercover agent. So what they did is they usually swore him in as an officer in secret. They didn't allow them to go through the police, regular police training so they couldn't be recognized or they couldn't be, you know, um, wouldn't make friends. And so that they would be more effective in, the under, um, in, in infiltrating the black community. Hey, D, I'm gonna jump in right now. So we, we got a few minutes left, and we've talked a lot about um, the, the history of the Panthers and, and obviously the tie-in with police brutality and talking about Jaleel. And I want to bring Nora back in. Uh, if she's on the line still, I think she is, uh, to talk to us a little bit about next steps on Jaleel's case um, and what she thinks, if anything, the general public can do to try to support Jaleel during this time period. Thank you for asking me that question. Um, I think this history, first of all, I wish it was more known, and I'm, I'm glad that you guys are out here educating everybody. Um, but I also want it 
to be clear to folks as it relates to Jaleel that the political prisoner label and his association with militant groups has really been a liability for him in terms of trying to get parole. And we could talk about that all night. Um, but I want people to understand a little bit what his parole release approaches, which is to emphasize that he poses no risk to the community. He's a great grandfather and he is remorseful. And the parole board has a very difficult time understanding that somebody could be still committed to racial and social and economic justice and not be a militant. Like that distinction is very difficult for these people. Um, and so I, I just want people to, to have an awareness of when they talk about Jaleel's case or talk about, um, talk about who he is, just to be aware of that dynamic. And if people do want to support him um, in this moment, that I think one way to do that would be to donate to Jericho, um, especially because Jaleel's family live in many different parts of the country. If, as we desperately hope, he is released at some point this year, <clears throat> money would be needed to, to fly in family members. He also still has an, uh, <clears throat> a case on appeal from his last parole denial. And there's going to be a, a small amount of legal money needed for legal um, support there. That's not a case that I'm handling. Um, so I, that's what I would say about next steps. There's also an ongoing campaign to put pressure on Tish, the Attorney General, <clears throat> and as well as to put pressure on uh, Tony Anucci, the DOCS commissioner, and ultimately Andrew Cuomo, to, to let people out of prison during the pandemic. Um, and that's not just Jaleel, but he is an excellent example of somebody who should be absolutely at the front of the line to be released. Um, that's right. So, you know, I, that, that's what I would say about next steps. There's definitely um, ways that folks can get linked in with the Northeast Political Prisoner Coalition um, or Jericho are definitely going to be sending out updates about Jaleel and his case and, and working to support him on an ongoing basis. So there, there are definitely ways to be involved and a lot of this is social media right now because we're all so distant. Um, but yes, please get in touch if you want to support. There was, there was one really positive thing, and there are many positive things in today's argument, but uh, what Nora just says brought to mind, you know, the AG, the Attorney General got up and said, well, we're doing everything we can. We're letting people out who are coming up for release. We're letting them out early. We're, um, you know, taking other steps to, to depopulate the prison. And one of the judges said, well, you said there were 40,000 people in prison in New York State? He said, yeah. And how many have you let out? Oh, about 300. 300 out of 40,000. Wow. <laughs> you know, well, they don't want to lose those they're jobs. Portraying this as, they're portraying this as a great thing um, in this pandemic. And, you know, uh, that was, you know, that was quite telling. Right. We're running, we're running out of time. We want to thank our guests. Uh, definitely want to bring you all back in the very near future. Uh, our guests, the Ruben Wahad, Robert Boyle, 
and Laura Carroll. Um, definitely, you know, check us out for updates, Renegade Culture. Um, yeah. You know, uh, Tish, as uh, Laura said, that's a perfect name for, I know Letitia James the name. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she reminds us of Tish, Tish you, because she's full of shit. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, we, we'd like yeah. to say that uh, to the folks out there who are fighting a good fight, stay on task, don't get too excited. You know what I mean? Um, you know, don't be misled by a lot of these different fools who are, you know, trying to lead you to the slaughter. Yeah. You know, and, and I just, you know, I just want to add too, uh, you know, uh, Jaleel was one of the first cases that I, um, as a, a young organizer and uh, even as a, a young attorney, got to, I got to know Jaleel and visit him. Um, and, and much of the support that Jaleel gets from the larger um, organizing community, whether it's the black community, the anarchist community, nationalists, uh, people who are socialist, left, uh, people who are just progressives, is because uh, Jaleel is a truth teller. Um, and Jaleel is a person who has stayed true to his values and his words. Um, and as a political organizer and activist and revolutionary, um, is someone that even though the state uh, uses those terms um, to kind of take something negative about him, we as a people know that the terms revolutionary um, and, and uh, someone who is a political prisoner is something that we hold high and support um, and do we all we can to try to make sure that that brother is free um, and that we continue this fight against uh, uh, police brutality and we continue to fight to free our soldiers. So uh, we'll be back on Renegade Culture. Yes, Absolutely. grab that book, We Are Our Own Liberators by Jalil Munta King. That's an excellent book to read. Yes. We'll be back at you, Renegade Culture. <laughs>